Welcome to Stan Dunn's Jewish Edition. This is your reader and host, Mark Braun here. Glad you could join us today. So I remind you, you are listening to a recording provided for the use of those who are blind and print impaired. Materials or items read in Ayers, LA are the copyright property of the original authors and publishers. No unauthorized use or duplication is permitted. Right? Right. All right. We got uh, some obits to start us off here. We have this one from the Los Angeles Times, California section, Sunday, October 29, 2023. David Lehrer, 1948 to 2023, civil rights lawyer, L.A. Jewish leader by Jacqueline Cosgrove. David A. Lear, a longtime leader in Los Angeles' Jewish community and attorney who helped draft the state's hate crime laws, has died. He was 75. He collapsed Wednesday at his Los Feliz home and could not be revived, his family said in a statement. Lear worked for almost 30 years in the West Coast office of the Anti-Defamation League, joining the group in 1975 as a civil rights attorney and later being promoted to regional director. He also led legislative efforts to outlaw tax-subsidized discrimination at private social clubs, including the Jonathan Club, and confronted the neo-Nazi and other extremist groups in the West. Lyra, a lifelong resident of Los Feliz, was an active long-term member of Temple Israel of Hollywood and will be greatly missed by all who knew, worked with, and loved him, his family said. Lyra is a first-generation Angelino, born to parents who fled Europe to escape anti-Semitism. His mother, Gertrude Trudy Lehrer, escaped Vienna in 1938 just after Kristallnacht, or the Night of Broken Glass, when Nazis burned synagogues, destroyed Jewish businesses and homes, and killed Jewish people in Germany and Austria. Had she not gotten a visa for the United States, undoubtedly she would have perished in Austria and in the con concentration camp, Lehrer said in a tribute video, for his mother's 100th birthday. Lear died a year after his mother, who was a week shy of her 103rd birthday when she died in the same home, his family said. He was born October 12, 1948 to Trudy and Irving Abraham Lear. He decided he wanted to be an attorney around 13 when he read My Life in Court, a 1961 memoir by trial attorney Louis Nizer, N-I-Z-E-R. He never changed his mind. He just wanted to be a lawyer, his younger brother Michael said Friday. After graduating from UCLA School of Law in 1973, Lear joined a private firm where, a few years into it, he realized he was unhappy, his brother said. He realized, why am I spending my time working to defend people and things I don't really care about, Michael said. As an attorney at the ADL, Lear appealed to the California Coastal Commission in 1985 to decline the request of the Jonathan Club, which leased 58,000 square feet of public land for its beachfront location to improve its Santa Monica property unless the club enforced a non-discrimination policy. After a three-year legal battle, the U.S. Supreme Court upheld the state court's decision, which had agreed that the Coastal Panel was within its purview to demand the club enforce such a policy. The decision affected other wealthy social clubs around Los Angeles with a history of accepting only Christian white men. It's a part of the process of eliminating this last vestige of institutional bigotry, the country club, and the downtown club that are small enclaves of discrimination, Laird told the Times in 1988. Longtime columnist Al Martinez wrote during the case that he'd known Laird many years and observed his fervent dedication to civil rights. He can identify an anti-Semite in a room full of liberals while, while blindfolded 
taking the racist out by only its vibrations like a tiger shark selects its next meal, Martinez wrote in 1985. In 1998, Lair was one of the first Jewish leaders to work with Muslim leaders and develop a code of ethics with them in 1998 to promote civil debate. After 27 years with the ADL, Lair was fired in 2001, a controversial move by the organization's New York leadership with whom Lair had political and personal disagreements. That was decried by many faith leaders in L.A., the Times reported. He privately and recently made up with the man who fired him, his family said. Probably he is paying the price for the more balanced view he took toward Muslims, Aslam Abdullah, vice president of the Muslim Public Affairs Council, said at the time. Lair bounced back quickly, working with community activist Joe Hicks to form Community Advocates, a nonprofit focused on race and human relations. The organization published articles, led programs, and helped develop educational curricula aimed at promoting tolerance, his family said in a statement. In 2017, Lair was alarmed by the rhetoric of President Trump and his travel ban on Muslim-majority countries, and also disappointed that the Jewish community wasn't raising its voice against the Trump administration's outrageous policies, said former county supervisor Zev Yaroslavsky, who knew Lair for 50 years. Lair, Yaroslavsky, and other prominent Jewish leaders launched Jews United for Democracy and Justice, an organization focused on protecting the country's con- uh, constitutional democracy. The group produced America at a Crossroads, a weekly online discussion hosting prominent experts and Los Angeles journalists. On Thursday, attorney and longtime activist Janice Kamenet-Resnick, his co-host, opened the show in honor of Lair. Kamenet-Resnick said more than a thousand viewers emailed her after her hearing, after hearing of Lair's death, noting that many told her that although they never met him, they felt as if they lost a beloved friend. David was a magnific- magnificent tapestry of the most positive human characteristics, Kamina Resnick said. He was soft yet tough, bold yet humble, always ready to speak truth to power, to call out injustice and false information, and he was wise beyond measure. Lair was awarded, aware of the enormous threats to the U.S. Constitution and democracy, but unwilling to yield to despair about the future, she said. Before every program, he asked moderators and guests to try to end each program with at least a drop of hope and optimism. Because he couldn't bear leaving you, our audience, depressed and hopeless, Commander Resnick said. In addition to his brother, Lair is survived by his wife, Ariella, his children, Eli, Jonah, Rachel, and Leah, a sister, Sheila, and nine grandchildren. That was David Lear, 1948 to 2023, civil rights lawyer, L.A. Jewish leader by Jacqueline Cosgrove from the California section of the Los Angeles Times, Sunday, October 29, 2023. All right, here is another one from the obituary section of the Los Angeles Times, Saturday, November 4th, 2023. Dorothy Salkin, October 20, 2023. With bright red curly hair, Dorothy Salkin was born in 1935 in Cincinnati. She was the youngest of the three children of Morris, Kiev, Ukraine, and Celia, Manchester, England. The family was conservative, and their home was observant and kosher. Dorothy attended Adath Israel Synagogue and studied at the Bound Hill Hebrew Institute. A Hughes High School graduate, Dorothy received her B.A. at University of Cincinnati and her M.S.W. at Ohio State University. 
Dorothy Salkin was a wife, mother, sister, grandmother, aunt, and great-aunt. She was a vivacious, gregarious, energetic, cheerful, successful, loving, kind, and generous lady. To know her was to love her. She was friendly, one-of-a-kind, and appreciated by all who knew her. A fashionista who loved color, Dorothy was always coordinated from her hat to her shoes. She loved everything Jewish. She loved her gardens, especially her roses and her apple, lemon, and avocado trees. An accomplished cook and baker, she studied at the Culinary Institute of America and taught Jewish cooking. She was an avid collector of Jewish cookbooks. She loved UCLA basketball and cheering on the Bruins with Avram for over 50 years. She adored the Bachelor TV show. Passionate about entertaining, she opened her home for decades for Jewish holiday celebrations and community and political events. She loved singing and writing parodies. She played the harp and the piano. She loved being in Mammoth and in Lake Arrowhead, especially with their children and grandchildren. Most of all, she adored her husband of 60 years, Avram, her soulmate, champion, lover, and best friend. We will miss her and remember her for all she contributed to so many organizations. Voted the busiest girl in the senior class of 1953, Dorothy Salkin did it all. Remembering Dorothy is the family she loved deeply and who loved her back. She is survived by her husband, Avram, daughter, Valerie, Jim, son, Ken, Mikhail, granddaughter, Marguerite, grandson, Daniel, niece, Anita Schneider, Hank, nephew, Mark Fiddler, grandniece, Leah Fiddler, grandnephew, Micah Max, Jessica, and great-nephews, Avi and Linus Max. Her memory may be honored through Temple Emmanuel Beverly Hills, UCLA Hillel, or the Women's Guild at Cedar sinai That was Dorothy Salkin, October 20, 2023, from the obituary section of the Los Angeles Times, Saturday, November 4, 2023. Right, here is another one from the obituary section of the Los Angeles Times, Friday, November 10, 2023. Yaron Solomon Rabinowitz, October 21st, 1953 to November 6, 2023. Author unknown. On the evening of November 6, we said goodbye to Yaron Solomon Rabinowitz. Yaron was born in 1953 in Cape Town, South Africa. He was the oldest of the four children of Esther Shaw and Simon Rabinowitz. For a portion of his childhood, Yaron and his family lived on a rural farm in Nam Namibia, where the closest city was seven miles away. During this time, he recalled caring for his family, being more industrious, and establishing his core values. Many years later, following his graduation from medical school at the University of Cape Town, Yarman immigrated alone to the United States to pursue medicine. He began his studies at the Milton Hershey Medical Center in Hershey, Pennsylvania. He then attended the Doheny Eye Institute of the University of Southern California, and later Johns Hopkins University at the Wilmer Eye Institute before setting up his own practice in Los Angeles, California. In his own words, his decision to pursue ophthalmology was driven by the ability to improve patients' lives. In 1990, Yaron founded the Cornea Genetic Eye Institute at Cedars-Sinai Medical Center, focusing on genetic eye diseases and pediatric corneal transplants. Yaron was the world's leading authority at Carat Keratoconus. Throughout his career, Yaron served as the chairman of the Division of Ophthalmology at Cedars-Sinai, 1996-2001, and a professor at the UCLA School of Medicine. 
In addition to his several accolades, 85-plus published manuscripts, and several book chapters, Yaron delivered over 130 lectures in over a dozen countries and has performed thousands of eye surgeries. A father, husband, brother, and uncle, Yaron always placed family, friends, and his patients above all else. Prioritizing the happiness of others over his own, he never failed to make sure others' needs were met. An avid traveler, reader, walker, and tennis player, remembering Yaron is the family he loved deep, deeply. He is survived by his wife Nancy, son Alec, daughters Sarah and Leah, his three younger siblings Daphne, Wayne, Ralph, and Orly, Robin, and a number of nieces and nephews. His member will be honored through the Yaron Rabinowitz Karachakonis Research Foundation, uh, www. Keratoconus.com. Today marks World Keratoconus Day. A funeral service will be held at Hillside Memorial Park and Mortuary at 12 p.m. today, November 10. Anyone who wishes to honor his memory may attend. Yaron battled our early onset Alzheimer's. In his honor, you may all, you may donate to the Alzheimer's Association, www.alz.org, or a charity of your choice. That was Yaron Solomon Rabinowitz, October 21st, 1953 to November 6, 2023, author unknown, from the obituary section of the Los Angeles Times, Friday, November 10, 2023. All right, we go into the business section of the Los Angeles Times, Wednesday, November 8, 2023. Gary Winnick, 1947 to 2023, Global Crossing founder, Loved the Big Fight by Lawrence Darmiento. Gary Winnick who rode the dot-com boom to briefly become the wealthiest businessman in Los Angeles before his star imploded in a scandal that came to represent the era's excesses, has died. He was 76. Winnick died unexpectedly Saturday at his historic and extravagant Bel Air home, which he had recently put on the market for $250 million, making it the most expensive residential listing in the United States. Winnick started out in furniture sales and worked with investment banker Michael Milken, the junk bond pioneer, before he came up with the idea for Global Crossing amid the dot-com boom. The Beverly Hills Company had an audacious plan to lay fiber optic cable under the ocean floor to feed the growing demand for bandwidth by the first generation of internet companies that had sprung up in the second half of the 1990s. Lauded as a master salesman, Winnick raised more than 20 billion dollars for the immense project, which laid more 100,000 miles of cable connecting countries across the earth, around the earth. Global Crossing was worth more than $50 billion in 1999, with Winnick's stake valued at some $6 billion. My dad was a fighter. He loved it. He loved the big fight. When he started Global Crossing, it was about picking a fight with the big telcos, said eldest, eldest son, Adam. That meteoric rise landed him at number one on the Los Angeles Business Journal's list of wealthiest Angelinos that year, prompting the Times to publish an article shortly thereafter that began, Who the Hell is Gary Winnick? The public soon found out as the native New, York, New Yorker spread his newfound largesse around, contributing more than $100 million to causes such as the Special Olympics, the Los Angeles Zoo, and the Simon Wiesenthal Center, making him one of the leading philanthropists of his adopted city. In 2000, he acquired Casa Encantada, a historic 60-room Georgian mansion completed in 1938 that looms over the Bel Air Country Club, paying $94 million, 
at the time a record for any home in the United States. He then launched a multi-million dollar renovation of the home. The dot-com bubble burst that year, sweeping away once household names such as Webvan and Pets.com and the projected demand for a cable bandwidth upon which Winnick had built his empire. By 2002, Global Crossing had filed for bankruptcy, listing $12.4 billion in debt and wiping out investors, including many company employees, some of whom had briefly become paper millionaires through their 401k investments. Winnick became the object of fury when it was learned that he had sold more than $600 million worth of Global Crossing stock over the years, and as he continued his meticulous renovation of Casa Intacat and Cantata, which included sculpting plaster crown moldings employing historically accurate techniques. Particular questions arose around a May 2001 sale of nearly 10 million shares worth about $124 million, which was conducted after warnings by top executives that the company was in financial trouble. As the company's chairman, Winnick claimed he was not aware of those warnings. Winnick was hauled before a House subcommittee to explain himself, and it was speculated that he would invoke his Fifth Amendment protection and refuse to testify. However, he surprised legislatures in October 2002 when he instead offered to contribute $25 million to employees who had invested pension money in the company. You just shocked a lot of people, and you should be proud of that, said subcommittee chairman James C. Greenwood, Republican of Pennsylvania, who was caught off guard. The offer pleased some employees, but was also criticized as stingy, with one for former employee saying it was like having somebody pick your pocket and then offering to give, it, give you back the lint. Winnick also contributed $55 million to a $324 million settlement with shareholders and former employees who had sued Global Crossing executives and directors alleging securities fraud. While other tech titans whose companies failed around the same time went to prison, including Bernard Evers of WorldCom, as well as Kenneth Lay and Jeffrey Skilling of Enron, both the Securities and Exchange Commission and the Department of Justice decided not to pursue charges against Winnick, who long maintained that he did nothing wrong and was the victim of a market collapse. I have no apologies for anything, he told the Business Journal in a 2015 article discussing his new ventures he was pursuing through his family office investment firm, Winnick & Company. Winnick was born on October 13, 1947 in New York City and grew up on Long Island in an entrepreneurial family. One grandfather sold restaurant supplies in the Bowery and another had a garment factory. His father, Arthur, owned a food service equipment business. Though it failed, Winnick said it never occurred to him not to go into business. After graduating from Rosalind High School and attending college close to home at the CW uh, Post Campus of Long Island University, he joined Wall Street investment banking house Burnham & Company in 1972. He later moved to the West Coast, where Milken set up his junk bond shop in Beverly Hills in 1978. Winnick learned from telecommunications business at the firm, later known as Drexel Burnham Lambert. He worked there for 13 years before leaving in 1985 to form an investment firm called Pacific Asset Management. Drexel collapsed a few years later amid insider trading allegations that prompted Milken to plead guilty to violating securities laws and sending him to prison. Milken was pardoned by President Trump in 2020. Winnick 
was never accused of wrongdoing, but had been subpoenaed to testify in the case before it was settled. After the fall of Global Crossing, Winnick maintained a low profile, and his youngest son, Matthew, said his father had been living a more balanced lifestyle, including enjoying time with his grandkids. My dad had been spending his time in a variety of endeavors. The primary focus has been his family philanthropy, as well as managing his Winnick and Company and its investments, he said. He had also decided to downsize. After briefly considering offers for Casa Ent and Cantata in 2019, he put the 8.5-acre, 40,000-square-foot mansion on the market earlier this year. The Los Angeles Business Journal in October estimated his net worth at $2 billion. Still, after decades in business, he seemed energized in the 2015 interview with the Los Angeles Business Journal as he talked about the new investment plans he had for L.A.'s tech startup scene. I've retired twice in my life. I retired at age 37. I lasted through lunch, he said. After a second retirement a few years later, he took up kickboxing and weightlifting, but decided, I'm going back to work and probably will never retire. He also looked fondly back at the legacy of Global Crossing, saying that the company was transformational and that the Internet would not be the Internet today without that network. Would we have an iWatch today? Would we have an iPhone today? Winnick is survived by his wife of 51 years, Karen, as well as three sons and eight grandchildren. There was Gary Winnick, 1947-2023, to Global Crossing founder, loved the big fight by Lawrence Darmiento from the business section of the Los Angeles Times for Wednesday, November 8, 2023. All right, let's get to the latest article with regards to the war in Israel from the world section of the Los Angeles Times, Friday, November 10, 2023. Israel agrees to daily pauses in Gaza onslaught, a second exit route from north and a deal to free about a dozen hostages are in works by Wafa, Sharapa, Basim Moreau, and Jack Jeffrey. Deir al-Bala, Gaza Strip. Crowds of Palestinian families stretching as far as the eye could see walked out of Gaza City and surrounding areas toward the south on Thursday to escape Israeli airstrikes and ground troops battling Hamas militants in dense urban neighborhoods. Others joined tens of thousands taking shelter at the city's biggest hospital not far from the fighting. The accelerated exodus to the southern Gaza Strip came as Israel agreed to put in place four-hour daily humanitarian pauses and to open a second route for people to flee the north, the White House said. The scope of the pauses was not immediately clear. The agreement came as Western and Arab officials gathered in Paris on Thursday to discuss ways of providing more aid to civilians in Gaza. Separately, mediators worked on a possible deal for a three-day ceasefire in exchange for the release of about a dozen of the more than 200 hostages held by Hamas, according to two Egyptian officials, a United Nations official, and a Western diplomat. Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu has said any temporary ceasefire would have to be accompanied by the release of hostages. Their plight has galvanized Israeli support for the war despite growing international concerns. Asked in a Fox News interview that aired Thursday about the prospect of a daily humanitarian pause, Netanyahu replied that the fighting continues against the Hamas enemy, the Hamas terrorists, but in specific locations for a given period, a few hours here, a few hours there, 
We want to facilitate a safe passage of civilians away from the zone of fighting, and we're doing that. Gaza's largest city is the focus of Israel's campaign to crush Hamas after its deadly October 7 assaults inside Israel. And the Israeli military says Hamas's main command center is located in and under the Shifa hospital complex. The military group and hospital staff deny that claim. Growing numbers of people have been living in and around the hospital complex, hoping it will be safer than their homes or UN shelters in the north, several of which have been hit repeatedly. Israeli troops are about two miles from the hospital, according to its director. Meanwhile, Israeli ground forces battled near the Shifa hospital, where the Israeli military says uh, senior Hamas leaders are hiding, using the facility as a shield. Hamas and hospital staff say the military is creating a pretext to strike it. Scores of wounded people were rushed to Shifa overnight, the hospital's general director, Mohammed Abu Salima told the Associated Press on Thursday. At dawn, a shell landed very close to the hospital, but thank God only a few people had minor injuries, he said. Conditions are worsening for people sheltering there, said three people who had left the hospital to go to south, uh, to go south in the last few days. Families are sleeping in hospital rooms, even surgical theaters, and the maternity ward, or on the streets outside. Daily food distributions helped a tiny number for a time, but there has been no bread for the last four days, they said. Water is scarce and usually polluted, and few people can bathe. Still, more families are arriving, believing it is safer than fleeing to the south, where airstrikes also continue, the people said, speaking on condition of anonymity for fear of reprisals. International journalists who entered northern Gaza on a tour led by the Israeli military Wednesday saw heavily damaged buildings fields of rubble, and toppled trees along the Mediterranean shoreline. More than two-thirds of Gaza's 2.3 million people have fled their homes since the war began, with hundreds of thousands heeding Israeli orders to flee south. But the conditions there are also dire. As Israel has continued to strike what it says are militant targets in the south, it has frequently destroyed homes with families inside. Aid deliveries to Gaza into Gaza from Egypt have reached an average of 100 trucks a day. Relief workers say that is still far below what is needed. The World Health Organization said a lack of clean water and bathing facilities in shelters across Gaza has fueled the spread of infectious diseases, including scabies, lice, chickenpox, skin rash, and respiratory illness. It has logged more than 33,000 cases of diarrhea since mid-October, more than half among children younger than five. Still, the exodus from Gaza City and surrounding areas in the north has accelerated in recent days. The UN Office of the Coordination of Humanitarian Affairs said 50,000 people fled south on Gaza's main highway Wednesday during a daily hours-long window announcement by Israel. There are clashes and shelling near the road, and evacuees reported seeing corpses alongside it, the UN Office said. Most are traveling afoot with only what they can carry, many holding children or pushing older relatives in carts. I'm carrying my house on my back, said Kamal Nisu, a 28-year-old, pointing to the possessions tied to his body. He had been walking three hours, he said. We've been expelled. We've been put through a catastrophe. I don't know where my people are, and I don't know what is coming for us. He used the Arabic word Nakba, which literally means catastrophe is a reference to the expulsion of, or flight 
of about 700,000 Palestinians from their homes in what is now Israel during the 1948 war surrounding Israel's creation. More than half of Gaza's residents are refugees from that, from that war or their descendants. The Hamas-run Interior Ministry, which has urged Palestinians to stay in their homes, has told media outlets not to circulate video of people fleeing. Palestinians arriving in the south have encountered a scarcity of food and medicine. Fistfights have broken out in bread lines. Residents wait hours for a gallon of brackish water that makes them sick. Scabies, diarrhea, and respiratory infections rip through overcrowded shelters, and some families have, cho have to choose who eats. My kids are crying because they are hungry and tired and can't use the bathroom, said Suzanne Wahidi, an aid worker and mother of five at a UN shelter in the central tent of Deir al-Bala, where hundreds of people are sharing a single toilet. I have nothing for them. A month of relentless bombardment in Gaza since the Hamas attack has killed more than 10,800 Palestinians, two-thirds of them women and children, according to the Health Ministry and the Hamas-run territory. More than 2,300 others are believed to have been buried by strikes that in some cases have demolished entire city blocks. Israeli officials say thousands of Palestinian militants have been killed and blame civilian deaths on Hamas. Gaza's health ministry does not distinguish between civilians and com combatants in its casualty reports. In the occupied West Bank, Israeli forces carried out their most intense raid in decades, storming the city of Jenin before dawn, sparking battles with Palestinian fighters that lasted into the afternoon and included an Israeli drone strike. At least 13 Palestinians were killed in the fighting, the Palestinian Authority and Health Ministry said, and Hamas acknowledged nine of them as its fighters. The Israeli military put the number of militants killed at 10. More than 1,400 people have died in Israel since the start of the war, most of them civilians killed by Hamas militants during their initial rampage. Israel says 32 of its soldiers have been killed in Gaza since the ground offensive began. Palestinian militants have continued to fire rockets into Israel, and about 250,000 Israelis have been forced to evacuate from communities near Gaza and along the northern border with Lebanon, where Israeli forces and Hezbollah militants have traded fire repeatedly. A drone exploded in the yard of a house in Israel's Red Sea city of Eilat, causing no injuries, and a long-range surface-to-surface missile whose source was under investigation was intercepted before, before entering Israeli airspace, the military said. Yemen's healthy rebels said they fired a batch of missiles at, at Israel on Thursday, including towards Eilat. At least the fifth time, the Iran-backed Iran force has tried to strike Israel. That was Israel agrees to daily pauses in Gaza onslaught by Wafa, Sharafa, Basim, Moreau, and Jack Jeffrey from the World Section of the Los Angeles Times, Friday, November 10, 2023. Sharafa, Moreau, and Jeffrey write for the Associated Press. Now we have some opinion articles on the matter. This first one is from the opinion section of the Los Angeles Times for Sunday, October 29, 2023. Fired for blaming Palestinians. Fired for blaming Israel. Is it right? Emotions are running so high that people who step into Israel-Gaza debates, no matter the side or how vociferously, pay a price. By Robin Abkarian. Should Americans be punished or lose their livelihoods for things they say about a gut-wrenching conflict taking place halfway across the world? 
In an ideal world where freedom of speech is absolute, short of advocating violence, no one should get fired for stating an unpopular view. But we don't live in that world. As some professionals with strong points of view and the irresistible urge to share them on social media are finding out. One day, after the heinous October 7 Hamas attacks on Israeli civilians, the Philadelphia 76ers basketball team tweeted out a message of support for Israel. We stand with the people of Israel and join them in mourning the hundreds of innocent lives lost to terrorism at the hands of Hamas. Jackson Frank, a young sports reporter who had been hired in September to cover the 76ers for Philly Voice, took exception. This post sucks. Frank, uh, quote, tweeted, solidarity with Palestine always. He was fired the next day. In Los Angeles, Tara Strong, 50, a successful voiceover artist who had played Bubbles in the Powerpuff Girls, Jimmy in the Fairly Odd Parents, and Melody in The Little Mermaid 2, among many other roles, was fired from the animated series Boxtown because the producer said she promoted controversial messages regarding the peoples of Palestine currently being affected by the ongoing Israel-Palestine crisis. Strong said she was fired for being Jewish. Creative artist agency super agent Maha Dakil, 48, who represents Tom Cruise, Madonna, Natalie Portman, Anne Hathaway, and Reese Witherspoon, stepped down from her leadership roles after she was deluged with criticism for reposting an Instagram story from the account Free Palestine. You're currently learning who supports genocide, said the post, to which Dakil added, that's the line for me. On Wednesday, writer-producer Aaron Sorkin, who had worked with Dakil for six years, announced that he was ending his relationship with CAA in favor of its competitor, William Morris Endeavor. Mahai isn't an anti-Semite, Sorkin said in a statement I found perfectly reasonable. She's just wrong. It goes without saying that these three careers would be entirely intact if not for social media's tendency to encourage heat over light. Frank, in an interview with Philadelphia's Jewish newspaper, The Exponent, stood by his tweet. I'm proud to say that I stood by my values, he said, which is hardly reassuring about his ability to keep his personal feelings personal, generally a requirement in our profession. Strong said she hastily liked a tweet, then unliked it when she read it all the way through and realized it was Islamophobic. And perhaps the understatement of the year, she wrote, the internet is so quick to peg people and make judgments. judgments. Daco, by contrast, took down her post and said, I'm sorry for the pain I have caused. What constitutes acceptable speech in a fraught movement like this is entirely subjective. But if you're anger, you anger your bosses, if you embarrass them or bring disrepute to the organization for which you work, you may get fired, or maybe not. Take, for example, what recently transpired at the New York Times. The newspaper was the most prominent of several news outlets that fueled widespread protests in the Arab world after reporting, apparently wrongly, that an Israeli rocket had fallen on a Gaza hospital. Just days later, the Times defended its decision to rehire a Palestinian freelancer in Gaza. Photojournalist Solomon Hiji had been let go last year after his anti-Semitic 2012 Facebook post was highlighted by a pro-Israel media watchdog group. The post featured a doctored photo of Hitler taking a selfie under which Hiji wrote in Arabic, How great you are, Hitler. Gilad Erdan, Israel's ambassador to the UN, tweeted, the at, any, the at New York Times has just rehired a Nazi. Let that sink in. Impossible, I thought. 
This is a news organization, after all, that forced out a top editor after the opinion section he saw he oversaw published an essay by MAGA Senator Tom Cotton, Republican of Arkansas, calling for a military response to unrest in American cities during 2020 Black Lives Matter protests. How on earth would it allow itself to be associated with a Hitler fan? The Times must have decided inexplicably, given its professed social media standards, that a well-resourced journalist on the ground in the Gaza war was worth the flack it would inevitably receive. In a statement to the New York Post, an unnamed representative from the New York Times said the company had taken a variety of actions to ensure that Hajib would not violate the Times' standards in the future. Mr. Hajib followed those steps and has maintained high journalistic standards, the Times said. He has delivered important and impartial work at, the great, at great personal risk in Gaza during this conflict. Meanwhile, MAGA Republicans, always ready to take a match to the U.S. Constitution, are calling for crackdowns on the free speech of pro-Palestinian college students. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis ordered state universities to ban Students for Justice in Palestine, a decades-old group with chapters on college campuses across the country, alleging that it supports terrorism. The Chancellor of Florida State University System has threatened school officials who did not shut the chapters down with necessary adverse employment actions and suspensions. Listen, I'm sure we all feel like a ping-pong match is being played inside our heads and hearts over what's happening in Israel and Gaza. The carnage and terror visited on Israeli civilians and the taking of hostages by Hamas is a monstrous crime that no amount of historical context justifies. The estimated 220 people still held as hostages by Hamas must be released. And while the retaliation against Hamas in the Gaza Strip by the Israel Defense Forces may be understandable on a gut level, its execution is morally indefensible. Not because Israel does not have the right to destroy Hamas, it does, but because the killing and suffering of thousands of Palestinian civilians, about half of whom are children, is also an affront to humanity. Reasonable, compassionate human beings can hold both of these thoughts. If you feel the need to say otherwise, just know that fairly or unfairly, you could end up paying a price. It was fired for blaming Palestinians, fired for blaming Israel, Is It Right? by Robin Abkarian from the opinion section of the Los Angeles Times, Sunday, October 29, 2023. Here's another opinion article from the opinion section of the Los Angeles Times, Tuesday, November 7, 2023. How China influences global talk about Israel. Anti-Jewish hate has exploded on Chinese-owned TikTok since the Hamas attacks, but the Chinese state has long encouraged anti-Semitism. By Jonah Goldberg While the whole world is talking about Israel, let's talk a moment about China. Why? For starters, China has a role in marking the whole making the whole world talk about Israel. In the wake of Hamas's barbaric anti-Jewish pogrom on October 7th, anti-Jewish hate has exploded on the Chinese social media Chinese owned social media platform TikTok. This has reignited calls for banning the platform in the US. Opponents note correctly that anti-Semitism has exploded on other social media platforms, and TikTok insists that it is working hard to combat the surge in bigotry and death threats. TikTok is going to have its work cut out for it because the Chinese state, which ultimately controls the platform, has been encouraging anti-Semitism and anti-Zionism for years now. State-run media regularly claims 
that Jews control the world's economy and American foreign policy. Social media influencers have a free hand to cheer on Hamas and claim Israelis are Nazis. The Wall Street Journal recently reported that Chinese companies Badu and Alibaba literally erased Israel from their maps. When Treasury Secretary Janet L. Yellen recently visited Beijing, a debate erupted over whether China should deal with an old Jewish lady who has a dual loyalty to the interests of the U.S. government and to Wall Street. Lest you try to pass all this off on independent voices in China, you need to remember that China bans criticism it doesn't like. You can't even post a picture of Winnie the Pooh because it's seen as a jab at President Xi Jinping. But you can rant about Jewish hunger for blood and money all you like. The argument for banning TikTok in the U.S. doesn't rely on Chinese efforts to foment anti-Semitism in the U.S., but on its broader threat to national security. But, uh, but the fact that a foreign power thinks it has an interest in amplifying Jew hatred in America should inform how we think about the issue. It should also inform how we think about not only China, but how we think about many of Israel's critics. The standard indictment of Zionism is that it is racist because it practices Jewish apartheid. By almost any measure, China is the most nativist nation on earth. Even North Korea has more immigrants. Thanks to Chinese conceptions of racial purity as of 2020, only 16,595 of China's 1.4 billion citizens are naturalized citizens. But not all Chinese citizens are equal. Many non-Han Chinese are second-class citizens required to show internal passports to leave their increasingly occupied territories. Indeed, the Chinese are practicing settler colonialism on a massive scale. Local customs and the teaching of minority languages are widely banned. Han Chinese are erasing ancient cultures in Mongolia, Tibet, and most acutely Xinjiang, the home of the uh, Uyghurs, U-Y-G-H-U-R-S. Even Uyghurs not put in prison camps are banned from practicing their religion. Their mosques and cemeteries are being ra raised. Uyghurs and Tibetans can be denied service in, ho in hotel rooms. Judaism, which, is, which isn't recognized as a religion, must be practiced in secret. Slave labor, mostly by Muslims, endures in China. After meeting with Xi last month, Mahmoud Abbas, now in the 18th year of his four-year term as the Palestinian Authority President of the West Bank, assured the world that China's persecution of Muslims, Uyghurs, had nothing to do with human rights. But Israel, where a fifth of citizens are Muslim or non-Jewish, is a unique threat to human rights and democracy? While the United Nations downplays China's abuses and General Assembly has condemned Israel 140 times since 2015, Russia comes in second with 23 condemnations. China? Zero. China's fomenting hatred of Israel and Jews appears to be a useful distraction from its own sins and a way to pander to and encourage global anti-Semitism and anti-Americanism. But it doesn't explain why so many people are so eager to believe that a bigoted, oppressive regime has the moral authority to condemn Israel. Nor does it explain why so many supposed proponents of liberal Western values are uniquely offended by Israel alone. 
That was how China influences global talk about Israel by Jonah Goldberg from the opinion section of the Los Angeles Times, Tuesday, November 7, 2023. Okay, we have one more opinion article on this from the opinion section of the Los Angeles Times from Monday, October 30th, 2023. The fate of Israelis and Palestinians are intertwined. Adhering to a false dichotomy frustrates our ability to speak with intellectual honesty and moral clarity by Daniel Brawl. War and conflict are almost invariably zero-sum games. What makes war so unforgiving, even oddly unifying, is that there is a shared experience of irreparable pain, loss, trauma, and destruction. Even the victor emerges a loser. The cruelty of war is that those shouldering the greatest loss are often the ones left abandoned, wondering futilely whether it was all worth it. Conflict must be understood through its catalyzing force, the collapse of empathy. We silence the human impulse to switch places by rationalizing animosities that enable us to strip others of their equal worth and right to life. The Israeli-Palestinian conflict and the conflict, conflict encircling the conflict has been beset by the same moral bankruptcies and zero-sum mentalities. A bedrock fallacy underpinning the Israeli-Palestinian conflict since its inception is that it's inherently ideologically incompatible to be both pro-Israel and pro-Palestinian. That reductive mindset has dominated the discourse to the detriment of healthy debate and conflict resolution. One can easily digress into a debate about the many rounds of war and failed peace plans, but that has been done ad nauseum. But the origins of our allegiances can be traced to 75 years of politicians, pundits, and profiteers pushing the false dichotomy of either being pro-Israel or pro-Palestinian. Dividing lines naturally breed division. Answering favorably for one party suggests that one is antagonistic, perhaps even hostile, toward the other. A consequence of division is its self-fulfilling tendencies. We convince ourselves that our cause is just. Its excesses cannot be questioned, and even the mere thought of impressing empathy with the other is tantamount to betrayal. And so those of us with no stake in the war nevertheless take up arms for our side as we pontificate from the privileged confines of peace. We are watching this dynamic on full display in the current war. When a mass terrorist broadcasts their slaughter of more than 1,400 Israelis, kidnapped hundreds, raped women, and beheaded human beings, one would be forgiven for assuming, perhaps naively, that allegiances would be suspended in favor of unconditional solidarity against these crimes. Indeed, we witness those who wrap themselves in the cloak of justice glory glorify the same strain of terrorism they had no qualms condemning in other parts of the world as they heartlessly rip apart posters of missing children and lecture the victims, victims for their own slaughter. Many immediately yelled, free Palestine, before, e before ever even calling to free the hostages. Of course, many are motivated by a hatred of Jews, so there's no need to grant them the benefit of the doubt and attribute their anti-Semitism to something more benign. But even those who don't ostensibly hate Jews struggle to pause and meaningfully acknowledge their pain before pivoting to the plight of Palestinians for fear of being called a sellout. Meanwhile, on the south side of that cursed border, by two million walking dead whom we refuse to look in the eyes, 
half of them children. These Palestinians are yearning to be free, free from Hamas's vice grip and free from the banality and brutality of blockade. Many of them knew they were operating on borrowed time in the wake of October 7, homes that housed generations reduced to rubble, sentimental family belongings, the threads connecting generations severed, dead children, too young to even curse the word they were briefly brought into, dug out of the dirt by a stranger because that child's parents have also perished. For many, the greatest emotion they can muster is pity, consigning Palestinians to unfortunate collateral damage of victims of Hamas's cruel misappropriation of civilian infrastructure, but they deserve more. Acknowledging that plight without quibbling over its cause doesn't discount Israeli suffering or trauma. But for many, doing so would be a sharp departure from a reflexive insistence on Israeli exceptionalism, which fails to consider that holding Israel to this impossible standard of perfection naturally sets it up for failure. An insufficient amount of people understand that it is not just possible to be both pro-Israel and pro-Palestinian, but that it is impossible not to be, for their destinies are inextricably bound together. Israelis won't know peace so long as Palestinians don't, and vice versa. Ignoring this inconvenient truth will only raise more embittered, radicalized children of war. Adhering to the pro-Israel, pro-Palestinian binary frustrates our ability to speak with intellectual honesty and moral clarity. Palestinian statehood will remain a pipe dream so long as liberation is sought through terrorism or the constant threat of it. At the same time, we must acknowledge that the far-reaching tentacles of occupation are rapidly eroding Israel's moral fabric, perpetuating the cycle of violence and deluding us into believing that it is possible for the state of Israel to remain Jewish and democratic without the establishment of the state of Palestine. No amount of military might can exhaust the desperation that statelessness arouses. The tragic thread connecting Israelis and Palestinians is the shared experience of irreparable pain. For too many, it is also the refusal to hold space for the other's pain out of an insecurity that invalidated that invalidated ours. A better future begins by disabusing ourselves of that notion, because a precondition for mutual peace is accepting the other's humanity. That was the fates of Israelis and Palestinians are intertwined by Daniel Brom from the opinion section of the Los Angeles Times, Monday, October 30, 2023. Daniel Brawl is a civil rights attorney and a writer on Israeli-Palestinian issues. All right, we're going to go into a different subject now, local but also international, from the Los Angeles Times, Monday, November 6, 2023. Former mayor hits his stride in post. Garcetti has become trusted Biden, has become trusted Biden asset as ambassador to India, resetting narrative by Courtney Subramanian. New Delhi, Indian pop fusion music blared from airport speakers as Eric Garcetti stood at the foot of Air Force One waiting to greet his longtime ally and most important political patron, President Biden. The former L.A. mayor, a bilingual Rhodes Scholar and striving son of a famed district attorney, hadn't planned to be here. As a key early endorser of Biden and the co-chair of his campaign, Garcetti had once seemed poised for a bright future in Washington, perhaps as a member of the new president's cabinet. But as LA's chief executive, 
Garcetti had struggled to make progress on some of the many problems that beset the pandemic-scarred city, including homelessness, crime, and housing affordability. And as Biden assembled his team, former city employees claimed that Garcetti had known of allegations that one of his longtime aides was a, sexual, was a serial sexual harasser and had done nothing. Garcetti denied knowing about the aides' alleged misdeeds, but Biden ultimately nominated Garcetti as ambassador to India, not transportation secretary or climate change advisor. His nomination languished in the Senate for 20 humiliating months before he finally won confirmation in March. The job in New Delhi, where a right-wing Hindu nationalist government has stoked anti-Muslim violence and challenged India's secular and democratic identity, offered Garcetti a path to recovery, a chance to reset his narrative. As ambassador, Garcetti negotiates with leaders of superpowers, na superpower nations and manages one of Washington's most critical relationships. Biden administration officials say the rookie diplomat has handled his job masterfully. But it would be a mistake to assume that Garcetti, who was considered for Hillary Clinton's running mate in 2016 and briefly flirted with the 2020 campaign for president, has given up his ambitions for higher office. The former mayor, just 52, hardly considers his diplomatic reincarnation as the capstone of his career. After all, it took Garcetti, Garcetti's mentor and ally three tries and half a century to reach the office he had al always sought. Speaking to the Times the day before Biden arrived for the Group of 20 summit, Garcetti had reflected on the lessons of Biden's long, fought, long fight to get him confirmed. He's Joe Biden. He's relentless, he said. It's better to be lucky and loyal than, you know, conniving and calculated. Garcetti would no doubt love to have a Biden-esque career trajectory, but his path to elected office is not yet clear. He's very smart, he's a great speaker, and he's young, politically speaking. All the right kind of qualities you want to pursue a career beyond being ambassador to India, said Jaime Regalado, Professor Emeritus of Political Science at Cal State LA. He thinks he has a political road to hoe, and I think he's probably right. We just don't know what it is or what kind of opportunity will really present itself. As Biden alighted from the plane uh, in New Delhi, he waved to the crowd, waiting under a blaze of floodlights. Garcetti smiled as the president pulled him in close for a handshake. Biden hugged the mayor's 11-year-old daughter, Maya, who stood alongside her father for the Bollywood-style arrival. As the president turned to watch dancers draped in purple and black perform on a stage in front of the terminal, Garcetti paused. He leaned back and held up his phone to capture the moment. Garcetti grew up in a family that cared deeply about politics. His mother, Suki Roth Garcetti, is the daughter of Harry Roth and L.A. Taylor, whose company made expensive suits for the likes of Lyndon B. Johnson. In 1967, Roth took out a full-page ad in the New York Times urging his client the president not to run for re-election because of the Vietnam War. For years, Garcetti's mother ran the family foundation, which invested in L.A. area organizations with the goal of promoting progressive social change. The Garcetti's traveled a lot. At age 14, Garcetti's parents took him and his sister to India, where he was enthralled by a tea shop in the heart of Old Delhi, walls brimming with gold tins of withered leaves, saffron Moroccan mint, white lavender, and mascala chai. In 1990, at age 19, he returned to the country with his Columbia University roommate, 
whose father was serving as U.S. ambassador to India. Garcetti began studying Urdu and Hindi, diving into the Vedas and other classically Indian texts before applying in his junior year to a Buddhist study program in Bodh Gaya, the holy pilgrimage site where Buddha was enlightened. But Garcetti abandoned plans for the program after a student council victory, the first of a series of elections that vaulted him from the L.A. City Council to Getty House. Garcetti's father, Gil, was elected L.A. District Attorney the year Eric graduated from college. When Biden phoned, uh, phoned to offer Garcetti the ambassadorship in 2021, it was like the hand of the universe reaching out and saying, you always, you've always wanted to be here. You always thought you would. He told the Times in a September interview at the palatial U.S. Embassy in Delhi's diplomatic enclave of Chanakyapuri. Biden was kind of amazed and surprised when Garcetti told him of his ties to India and the embassy there. He had no idea, Garcetti said. Garcetti, who moved here immediately after his confirmation, misses L.A. sometimes, but he's not pining for it. His wife, Amy Wakeland, arrived overnight in the middle of the G20, joining her husband and Maya, who moved to Delhi in August to begin the school year. He has delighted in Delhi dinner parties, which can spill into the late hours as conversations veer from Greek philosophy and Gujarati textiles to the state of Indian cities and their storied histories. And as he worked his way through Delhi streets and narrow alleyways, he revisited the tea shop that had captivated him as a boy. Ap ki pasand, the Hindi phrase for as you like it. If Mumbai, like New York, is a city that just presents itself, Delhi is more a city that reveals itself, he said. Both Delhi and L.A. just kind of happened. They weren't really planned. I mean, it's a very simulating place to be. In the six months since he arrived in, in Delhi, he has visited 13 of India's 36 states and union territories to meet with state and local officials and has appeared in dozens of interviews on Indian airwaves. He has helped ink a battery of deals, including one to allow General Electric to build jet engines in India and allow and another to allow U.S. Navy ships to stop uh, for repairs at Indian shipyards. He has become a drumbeat of VVIPs, or very, very important persons, including the Secretaries of State, Defense, Commerce, and Treasury Secretary Janet L. Yellen, was visited four times this year alone. This job is a lot of work, but it's great. Good work, Garcetti said. You really feel like this is one of the centers of the universe right now. He's not far off. Sharing a 2,000-mile border with China and located next to a key maritime routes, uh, India is a crucial part of Washington's bulwark against a more assertive Beijing. Though India and the U.S. are not formal allies, Biden has sought to tighten the partnership, establishing high-level cooperation on defense and emerging technologies, and working to resolve long-standing trade disputes at the World Trade Organization, though don't expect a free trade agreement anytime soon. The India-U.S. relationship will be our most important relationship that will define the trauma and the possibilities for the 21st century, said Kurt Campbell, the National Security Council coordinator for Indo-Pacific Affairs, who is now Biden's nominee for the number two position at the State Department. Ambassador Garcetti is exactly the person we want there at this time. But India, the world's most populous country and fifth largest economy, has also rankled Western leaders. New Delhi has refused to prioritize its relationship with the West over Russia, 
which it depends on for energy and weapons. Since the Russian invasion of Ukraine, India has continued to buy cheap oil from Russia and has resisted joining Western-led economic sanctions against Moscow. And although Indian Prime Minister Narendra Modi's June visit to the U.S. was a week-long spectacle celebrating the two countries' shared values of freedom, democracy, and human rights, Modi's Hindu nationalist government has allowed violence against Muslims to fester, passed a citizenship law that discriminates based on religion, revoked the special autonomous status granted to India's only Muslim-majority territory, Jammu and Kashmir, and cracked down on press freedoms. Religious and ethnic violence spurred by Modi's party and its policies have exposed the fault lines in India's diverse communities. The remote northeastern state of Manipur made international headlines in May when the ethnic clashes prompted protests across the country and ended up statement from the United Nations experts who said they were alarmed by serious, by serious human rights abuses and the government's inadequate response. By August, the violence left more than 160 people dead and at least 60,000 others displaced. Garcetti, who served on the board of the California chapter of the Human Rights Watch and maintained close ties to the uh, progressive nonprofit Liberty Hill, told senators ahead of his confirmation that human rights would be a core part of his agenda as ambassador. But he has taken a more placated tone since arriving here while insisting he continues to quietly raise the issue without lecturing Indian counterparts about what they consider to be domestic issues. Democracies are complicated and diversity is difficult in our country and here. So those are legitimate concerns and ones we talk with Indians about all the time, both ways, Garcetti said. The ambassador's message echoes White House sentiment on India. But it's a far cry from what he told the Times a decade ago when he was asked to reflect on a hunger strike he led at Oxford over the passage of a 1994 California ballot measure that denied immigrants access to schools to, to, to state health care and schools. In my book, whether it's me in Los Angeles seeking, seeing an injustice across an ocean or vice versa, you have to stand up and be heard, he said in a 2013 interview. It was especially hard to ignore Modi's heavy-handed approach during Biden's visit to India. After Garcetti greeted him at the airport, the president held a bilateral meeting with the prime minister that was closed to reporters who traveled with him, a major departure from protocol. Garcetti, who attended Biden's meeting with Modi, said that he and other administration officials have pushed for press access in private conversations with Indian officials. I've been on the firing line. Trust me, it's not always pleasant, he, told, he said he has told his counterparts. But I'd ra much rather live with a system in which you have the ability to have this conversation rather than one in which we don't or where there is some censorship. The U.S.-India relationship was further strained in September by Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau's bombshell allegation linking the Indian government to the assassination of a Sikh separatist in British Columbia. The White House, caught between a long-standing ally and a strategic partner, has been quiet. Moments like this don't define a relationship, Garcetti told reporters. Navigating diplomacy with one of the most important countries to, uh, to Biden's agenda has enabled Garcetti to flaunt his political deftness and burnish his foreign policy credentials. The White House says it is happy with the results Garcetti has delivered and considers the G20 to have been a success with the announcement of ambitious plans 
for a rail and shipping corridor connecting India and Europe through the Middle East. But administration officials have no doubt about Garcetti's most valuable quality. Politics is about many things, but sometimes an underappreciated element of being effective is loyalty, and he's demonstrated that amply, Campbell added. The diplomatic corps is not the traditional springboard for higher office. Many ambassadors who seek higher office lose, though former Utah Governor John Huntsman Jr. served as U.S. Ambassador to Singapore before he won the governor's mansion, he failed in his bid for the 2012 Republican presidential nomination after resigning as President Obama's ambassador to China. He lost a second bid in Utah's gubernatorial race in 2020 after serving as President Trump's top diplomat in Russia. George H.W. Bush is the last former diplomat to serve as president. Bush convinced President Nixon to appoint him as U.S. ambassador to the U.N. and later served as President Ford's chief of the U.S. liaison office in China, roles the future president saw as a way to polish his resume. But for Garcetti, who ended his tenure as mayor on a sh on shaky footing, the path back to elected office may be murkier. In 2020, Black Lives Matter activists staged daily demonstrations outside the then-mayor's home to protest his potential appointment to the Biden administration, slamming Garcetti's record on homelessness, transportation, and policing. Rigolato, the political scientist, said Garcetti's troubled exit could come back to haunt him, but his strengths may outweigh his political baggage. He's still a relatively young political cat with more political lives to grow into, Rigolato said. Whether you love him or dislike him or someplace in, the, in between, this is not the last we hear of Eric Garcetti. In New Delhi, Garcetti is looking ahead. He speaks about a strong U.S.-India relationship as a foregone conclusion, a defining chapter that he and the Biden administration are already etching into history. When he returns to California, he will have foreign policy experience and a powerful ally in a president. He is relentless. He is loyal. Will he be lucky? That was former Mayor Hits a Stripe by Courtney Subramanian from the Los Angeles Times, Monday, November 6, 2023. Right here's something else from the California section of the Los Angeles Times for Tuesday, November 2nd, 2023. Anti-Semitic graffiti found at Cantor's Deli. The messages are being investigated as a possible hate crime by Salvador Hernandez and Summer Lee. Anti-Semitic messages found painted outside Cantor's Deli in the Fairfax District early Wednesday are being investigated as a possible hate crime according to the Los Angeles Police Department. Police responded to the 400 block of North Fairfax Avenue, where earlier in the day, images posted on X, formerly Twitter, showed the wall of the Jewish restaurant's parking lot painted with the words Free Gaza and Israel's only religion is capitalism in white graffiti. How many dead in the name of greed read another message under a black and white picture of the Cantor's Deli storefront. The words were scrawled under the Fairfax Community Mural by artist Art Mortimer. Unveiled in 1985, the mural showcased the history of Los Angeles Jews through enlarged photographs from the earliest days of the Jewish community in the city. Shortly after noon, customers continued to stream in and out of the delicatessen during the lunchtime rush. Very few employees at Cantor's wanted to speak on the record about the vandalism, referring media inquiries to Mark Cantor, co-owner of the deli, who wasn't present Wednesday afternoon. 
Cantor is the son of the late Alan Cantor, the previous owner of Cantor's Deli. Tristan, a cashier at the deli who declined to provide her last name, said he arrived at work around 11.15 a.m. and saw two cop cars and two police officers outside. He said he asked another Cantor's employee who confirmed to him that the parking lot had been vandalized. He declined to comment further on the nature of the graffiti and said that he hadn't seen it himself. This is L.A., he said. I don't want, I don't know what to say. Outside, customers leaving the deli hadn't seen or heard about the graffiti, which appeared to have been painted over with fresh black paint by 11 a.m. An LAPD spokesperson said police were called to the restaurant in the Fairfax district at 10.37 a.m. LAPD officer Rosario Cervantes said officers were called about a vandalism, in, a vandalism incident and they took a report for a possible hate crime. She said police also responded to the 300 block of La Brea Avenue, where officers also took a report of vandalism and a possible hate crime. The location of the second incident is near the synagogue congregation base Yehuda, where Rabbi Yosef Mishulovin told the Times that he had gone Wednesday morning to pray when he saw graffiti there that also read Free Gaza. Mr. Lovin said he found some of the graffiti later that morning in front of his store, Chabad Atara's Judaica, where the message Free Gaza was spray-painted on the walkway. Posters of Palestinian men were put up outside the store as well, with their names, ages, and the words murdered by Israel at the top. Mr. Lovin said he called the police and that they took a report at the scene. Though shaken, Mr. Lovin said he was trying not to focus on the incident. It's very frustrating and it's very and very annoying, but life has to go on, he said. Our eyes are looking forward to make people better to make better people. On Wednesday morning, Los Angeles Mayor Karen Bass issued a statement condemning the vandalism in the Fairfax district. We will pursue those responsible for this unacceptable rash of hate and hold them fully accountable, Bass said. We will continue to collaborate with the Los Angeles Police Department and to not only respond to these anti-Semitic acts, but also to prevent these acts of hate from occurring in the first place. The vandalism comes amid tensions over the conflict in Gaza and the deaths of 1,400 Israelis and thousands of Palestinians. Earlier this year, the Anti-Defamation League said that harassment, vandalism, and assaults had, a, had surged in Southern California and the rest of the state in 2022. But the Jewish Civil Rights Organization has warned that since the October 7 attack by Hamas, in which more than 1,400 people were killed in Israel and more than 200 taken hostage, incidents of hate against Jews have spiked. Some of the Palestinian community have also expressed fears that the conflict could bring more hate targeting them, including those who speak out publicly about Israeli government actions. More than 8,300 Palestinians have been killed so far, including thousands of women and children, according to Gaza's Hamas-run health ministry. More than 1.4 million people in Gaza have been displaced and 21,000 injured, according to the United Nations Office for the Coordination of Humanitarian Affairs. The posters outside Mishalovin's store seemed reminiscent of posters that street artist Nitzan Mintz and her partner Didi Band-Aid created in a campaign to draw attention to the more than 200 hostages taken by Hamas during the October 7 attack. The posters with the word kidnap 
and pictures of Israeli hostages were first posted in New York and have been reprinted and appeared across the world. The flyers have since become another point of contention amid heated emotions of the conflict, with social media videos of people being confronted after tearing down the kidnapped posters. The posters outside Michelobin's store looked similar, but with the words murdered at the top. That was anti-Semitic graffiti found at Cantor's Deli by Salvador Hernandez and Summer Lynn from the California section of the Los Angeles Times, Thursday, November 2nd, 2022. Here's one from the Los Angeles Times, Saturday, November 4th, 2023. Israel versus Hamas opens a divide in Berkeley. A law professor's op-ed and the dean's response inflamed passions on both sides by Debbie Trung. A week into the Israeli-Hamas war, a Berkeley law professor published an op-ed in the Wall Street Journal under the headline, Don't Hire My Anti-Semitic Law Students. Backlash was swift. More than 200 alumni signed an open letter to the law school's dean, Erwin Chemerinsky, urging him to publicly address the harm done by the article and to uphold freedom of speech for all students. In an email to the Berkeley Law, School, Law community, Chemerinsky affirmed the school's commitment to freedom of speech, including language that others find offensive and even deeply offensive. He also noted that the professor was expressing a personal opinion and did not speak for the law school. Then last weekend, Chemerinsky, a constitutional law, school, uh, constitutional law scholar who was Jewish, publicly published an op-ed of his own in the Los Angeles Times. He described anti-Semitic remarks directed at him since the war started, as well as statements from students and academics around the country that he said celebrated the Hamas terrorist attacks. There has been enough silence and enough tolerance of anti-Semitism on college campuses, he wrote. I call on my fellow university administrator to speak out and denounce the celebrations of Hamas and the blatant anti-Semitism that is being voiced. Even before Hamas's brutal October 7 incursion into Israel, the Israeli-Palestinian issue had been a painful source of conflict on college campuses. The escalating war, including relentless Israeli airstrikes and a ground invasion of Gaza, has turned U.S. universities into battlegrounds over speech and the potential consequences of airing opinions that some regard as hateful. More than 1,400 people have died on the Israeli side, many civilians killed during Hamas's initial attack, and Palestinian militants are holding about 220 people hostage. More than 9,000 Palestinians have been killed in the war, mostly women and children, according to the Hamas-run Gaza Health Ministry. More than 1.4 million have fled their homes. At Berkeley Law, the inflammatory Wall Street Journal op-ed by Stephen Davidoff Solomon an expert on corporate law and an advisor to the Jewish Law Students Association has had a chilling effect, say some students who advocate for Palestinian rights. Many feel uncomfortable speaking out beyond their private social media accounts, said Matt Fernandez, a third-year law student and member of the uh, Berkeley chapter of Law Students for Justice in Palestine. Everyone's scared. Everyone's fearful. Everyone feels angry and betrayed by our own faculty. In the op-ed, Solomon recommended against hiring his own students if they advocate hate and practice discrimination. He referenced a bylaw that the Berkeley chapter of, of law students for justice in Palestine had adopted the previous academic year, vowing not to invite speakers that have expressed and continue to hold views uh, or host, sponsor, promote events in support of Zionism 
the apartheid state of Israel, and the occupation of Palestine. Eight other campus organizations signed on to variations of the bylaw, which critics them as silencing Jewish students. If you are a legal employer, when you interview students from Berkeley, Harvard, NYU, or any other law school this year, ask them what organizations they belong to, Solomon wrote. Ask if they support discriminatory bylaws or other acts and resolutions blaming Jews and Israelis for the Hamas massacre. If a student endorses hatred, it isn't not only your right, but your duty not to hire him. Last month, a New York law firm rescinded a job offer to an NYU law student who had written what the firm described as inflammatory comments about the Hamas attack. Another law firm initially rescinded offers to Harvard and Columbia students for similar reasons. The New York Times reported that about two dozen Wall Street law firms signed a letter to law schools cautioning that students hoping to be hired should be prepared to work under zero-tolerance policies for any form of discrimination or harassment, much less the kind that has been taking place on some law school campuses. Fernandez said he feels that Solomon directly targeted marginalized students because most of the organizations that adopted the bylaw, some of which were named in the op-ed, represent students of color and queer students. Many of Fernandez's peers are worried that by expressing support for the Palestinians, they could jeopardize their law careers or face online abuse. During the bylaw controversy, students associated with law students for justice in Palestine were doxxed and deluged with hate mail, Fernandez said. At one point, a truck circled the campus displaying billboards that named several students, including Fernandez, and declared them part of Berkeley's Law's anti-Semitic class of 2023. Solomon did not respond to requests seeking comment. After Solomon's op-ed was published on October 15, Liz Jackson's phone lit up with messages from fellow uh, Berkeley Law alumni. Jackson is Jewish and a founding attorney with Palestine Legal, which defends the rights of people who speak in support of Palestinian freedom. The content of his op-ed went around like wildfires, she recalled. It was a shocking and racist and very offensive to myself as a Jewish alumni and students of all backgrounds who identify with Palestinians. To Jackson, the opinion piece read as a call to punish law students who advocate for Palestinian rights, many of them students of color who already face barriers to employment. With other alumni, she began organizing the open letter to Chemerinsky, which, in addition to urging the dean to speak out, accused Solomon of violating the university's free, free speech values by threatening the safety and livelihoods of students based on their political opinions. And, the letter said, Solomon conflated support for the Palestinian people or criticism of the Israeli government with anti-Semitism. Asked in an interview on Monday, if he thought Solomon's op-ed was harmful to students, Chemerinsky said, What else can I say other than, that isn't the law school's position, and, and will help every student find a job? Some law students said they largely disagreed with Solomon. Jacob Shuffet, a first-year student who is Jewish, said law firms have the right to choose their employees. Everyone has a right to free speech, and law firms are free to hire who they want to hire, he said. At the same time, I think organizations on campus both in the law school and UC Berkeley itself, have blurred the line between legitimate Palestinian issues and rights and a support for terrorism that wants to see me dead. Charlotte Aaron uh, said that as a Jewish student, she has felt increasingly unsafe on campus since the war started. 
Last week, Erin said she retreated to her home in Arizona for a few days after watching some of her lost school peers join hundreds of other students in a pro-Palestinian protest on campus, chanting phrases such as, Smash the Zionist Settler State. The walkout was part of a national protest calling for Israel to end its siege on Gaza. At Cornell University, violent threats against Jewish students prompted campus police to increase security at the Center for Jewish Living last week. Employers have an obligation to consider this moral failing, said Aaron, a third-year student. I wouldn't want any person who justified the murders of October 7 and the holding of hostages to be my lawyer. I'm deeply concerned about these individuals being in positions of power one day. After initially taking no action, Chemerinsky emailed editors of campus law journals on October 23rd, informing them that students can no longer receive academic credit for working on a journal that has adopted the bylaw. In his October 29 op-ed, Chemerinsky noted that he strongly opposes the policies of Netanyahu's government, favors full rights for Palestinians, and believes there must be a two-state solution. But, he wrote, he can no longer stay silent when some people on college campuses are calling for an end to Israel. Aaron said she approves of Chemerinsky's willingness to condemn anti-Semitism and feels lucky to attend a school he leads. But some alumni criticized Chemerinsky's op-ed for failing to also condemn anti-Palestinian racism that students are experiencing. Jackson said she was alarmed that Chemerinsky would use this platform to center his own personal discomfort when we're watching a genocide committed in the name of Jewish safety. She said Chemerinsky smeared his own students and ascribed a level of hate to them that essentially is the same thing as the Solomon op-ed, but a little lighter. That was Israel versus Hamas Opens a Divide in Berkeley by Debbie Chuang from the Los Angeles Times, Saturday, November 4th, 2023. All right, we go to this one from the Los Angeles Times, Sunday, November 5th, 2023. More anti-Israel pro-Gaza graffiti reported at Jewish sites in L.A. Denounced by leaders as anti-Semitic, some vandalism probed has possible hate crimes by Salvador Hernandez. The same day that anti-Semitic graffiti was found painted outside Cantor's Deli in the Fairfax District last week, at least half a dozen other similar incidents of vandalism were discovered at Jewish businesses, schools, and synagogues across L.A., authorities said. Some of the other incidents of vandalism were reported on Wednesday in the Pico-Robertson neighborhood, known for its large Jewish community, and included anti-Israel and pro-Palestinian messages according to the Anti-Defamation League. The incident outside Cantor's is being investigated as a possible hate crime, Los Angeles police said. The graffiti there included messages in white paint under the Fairfax Community Mural, which faces Cantor's parking lot and features historic figures of Los Angeles' Jewish community, such as Dodgers legend Sandy Koufax. The graffiti included messages that read, Israel's only religion is capitalism, how many dead in the name of greed, and free Gaza. The incidents denounced by Jewish and civic leaders as anti-Semitic attacks on their community come amid an escalating war between Israel and Hamas, whose militants launched a brutal offensive from the neighboring Gaza Strip on southern Israel on October 7. Since then, more than 1,400 people have reportedly died on the Israeli side, with Hamas continuing to hold about 220 people hostage in Gaza. 
More than 8,300 Palestinians have been killed in Israeli counterattacks on Gaza, mostly women and children, according to the Hamas-run Gaza Health Ministry. Since the October 7 attack in Israel, the Anti-Defamation League says harassment, vandalism, and attacks against Jews have surged across the country. Vandalizing and targeting synagogues, Jewish neighborhoods, and a mural about local Jewish history on the wall of the iconic Cantor's Deli on Fairfax Boulevard is heinous and anti-Semitic, said Jeffrey Abrams, LA Regional Director of the Anti-Defamation League in Los Angeles. In addition to the Cantor's incident, the Los Angeles Police Department confirmed a second act of vandalism in the 300 block of La Brea Avenue that is also being investigated as a possible hate crime. In all, five additional incidents were reported on Wednesday to the Anti-Defamation League and were laid to the LAPD, according to the Jewish Rights Organization. A spokesman for the LAPD could not confirm that reports were taken for all of those incidents. Two utility boxes located in front of a yeshiva, a Jewish academy of Talmudic learning, in the 1200 block of South La Cienega Boulevard were tagged with Free Gaza, according to the ADL. A similar message was found two blocks away near the intersection of Whitworth Drive and South Orlando Boulevard. A poster at a bus stop was also spray-painted with the message Free Gaza near the intersection of Pico Boulevard and Alfred Street. A construction site near Melrose and La Brea Avenues was vandalized with Israel dollar sign killers in white paint. And congregation Bias Yehuda in the 360 block of North La Brea Avenue was also spray-painted with Free Gaza, according to the ADL. The ADL has images of the graffiti which were reviewed by the Times. On the social media site X, formerly known as Twitter, Los Angeles City Councilwoman Katie Yaroslavsky called the incidents disgusting. Yaroslavsky, whose district includes the locations where the graffiti was found, said her staff responded to seven incidents in her district. Jews in L.A. have been sounding the alarm on the rise in anti-Semitism for years, she wrote. It's disgusting and it has no place in Los Angeles. There was more anti-Israel pro-Gaza graffiti reported at Jewish sites in L.A. by Salvador Hernandez from the Los Angeles Times, Sunday, November 5th, 2023. Now here's something from the Los Angeles Times, Sunday, November 5th, 2023. L.A. residents help build a kibbutz. After Hamas militants attack the Israeli community, Jewish supporters mourn and donate funds by Brittany Mejia. Armed security guards dressed in black scanned the invitation list before waving each guest inside. They kept a sharp eye out for, for trouble as they milled about the crowd of more than 130 gathered not at an embassy or government compound, but in the backyard of a stately home in Southern California. Some of the men who had been invited to the Thursday evening event wore yarmulkes. One young woman wore a scarf patterned with the Star of David. These are not public officials being guarded, but worried members of the Jewish community. They were gathered in this neighborhood to help raise funds to rebuild Kifar Azak Kibbutz, a communal village where around 60 people were killed in the October 7 attack on southern Israel by Hamas militants. An additional 18 people, including seven children, were kidnapped from the kibbutz, according to residents. The attack unfolded some 7,500 miles away. More than 1,400 Israelis were killed and more than 200 kidnapped, according to Israeli officials. The October 7 assault 
was followed by retaliatory airstrikes on Gaza by the Israeli military, which continue with no end in sight. More than 9,000 Palestinians have been killed, according to the Hamas-run Gaza Health Ministry. The goal of Thursday's gathering was to help those in far-off peril. But on this night, the danger fell awfully close, close by, so close that the event's hosts asked that the location not be divulged for safety reasons. As he spoke to the crowd gathered in the backyard, Yuval Woolman, an L.A. resident who helped organize the event, cited reports of anti-Semitism targeted at students at a Manhattan Beach middle school. He referenced reports of people storming an airport in Russia targeting a flight from Israel. The attack in Israel, he said, was directed at the very foundations of our existence as Jews. In a way, Jews all around the world, including us today, now share the fate of Kafar Azaz survivors. Rebuilding that kibbutz is one step forward for all of us to recover what we as people lost. Kibbutzim are built on the principles of communal and cooperative living. An estimated 125,000 people live in a little more than 250 kibbutzim scattered throughout Israel. Many who live there are strong believers in peaceful and respectful coexistence, according to Ran Abramitsky, a professor of economics at Stanford University. But on October 7, some of the worst violence from the Hamas attacks centered on the kibbutzim, including Kafar Azah. It's very tragic and ironic because when you think about peace and safety and an idyllic place to live, you think about a kibbutz, said Abramitsky, author of the book The Mystery of the Kibbutz, Egalitarian Principles in a Capitalist World. That's the kibbutz Rotem Holen described, her voice wavering as she stood at the microphone in front of the gathered L.A. residents that chilly evening. She'd arrived from Israel just that morning, weary from travel and the trauma of the past weeks, but determined to tell her story. Holland, 44, spoke about Kafar Azah, where she was born and raised and where her son and daughter were growing up in the past tense. It was the most beautiful place, with the most beautiful sunsets. On October 7th, the kibbutz, which was founded in the 1950s, had been scheduled to hold an annual kite festival. Community members had planned to take their kites with messages of peace up on a hill and fly them above the nearby Gaza border fence. But then the missile attack started. Holland was at home with her six-year-old son and five-year-old daughter. The children in pajamas printed with character characters from the movie Madagascar were asleep in their bedroom, which doubles as the family's safety, safe room. As Holland locked the house and pulled down the shades, she heard machine gun fire outside. She grabbed tablets for the children and a bag of rolls and ran into the safe room. She could hear the shooting and bombing in outside. Terrifying messages began to spread in the kibbutz's WhatsApp group. They are butchering us. They are burning us. Help us. Why nobody is coming, Holland recounted, hands clasped behind her back as people in the crowd shook their heads and wiped tears from their eyes. Soon after, Holland said, she found herself gripping... Uh, closed the hand closed the hand of the door, which opens from the outside, as Hamas militants tried to pull it open from the other side. One of the six men who broke into the house, she repeatedly called them terrorists, shot into the room. The bullet embedded the safe room's closet. As they forced their way inside, Holland said she told the attackers only, only she and her two children were home. 
I'm a Muslim. We're not going to hurt you, one of the men dressed in black told her in English. They took Holland's phone and her car keys and shut her inside of the safe room. When her children finally slept, Holland said she prayed between their beds that someone will come and rescue us. The family was rescued the following day, which is when she began learning the true toll. Aside from two families, she said, all of her neighbors were either kidnapped or murdered. Her parents and brother, who also lived in the kibbutz, were unharmed. Holland read the names of each resident who was either kidnapped or killed. Grief hung heavy in the air. Attendees dropped their heads into their hands and clutched tissues to tear-stained faces. Every one of those named, Holland said, is like our brother, our mother, our baby, and it's very hard. We will come back someday. I don't know how. I don't know where. The community has the strength to rebuild. When Holland finished speaking to applause from the crowd, Woolman thanked her for her words. You said earlier that you felt every person killed or kidnapped is like your own sibling or son. I think speaking on behalf of this community, we feel the same, he said. All the people that you named now in Kafar Azah are like our family as well. That's why we are here. Woman's company, Cyberproof, has committed to help the kibbutz recover. He said he hopes to form a task force to work with survivors. He said he hopes to form a task force to work with survivors. More than $100,000 has been raised from, variety of, from a variety of donors for the Kafar Azah community. Israel was ever-present throughout the little more than hour-long event. Attendees sang the country's national anthem as they stood or sat of white folding chairs scattered around the backyard. Californians called out the names of Israeli soldiers ahead of a prayer by local rabbis. Musicians played Forever October, a song about the 1973 Yom Kippur War. They translated it from Hebrew to English and changed a lyric from October 6, the start of the Yom Kippur War, to October 7, to mark the recent attacks. The terror of the seventh night, when the clock is stopped and they darken the light, and your heart is stopped, they sang, forever October. Candles flickered on a table <clears throat> in between photos of smiling Kafar Azav residents who were killed last month. Among them were teenagers, young couples, and elderly people. Nearby were framed pictures of those kidnapped, including a three-year-old whose parents were killed. Haley Gersh, 22, whose parents hosted the event at their home, recounted how her Saba, Hebrew for grandfather, had helped build Kafar Azah. Later, during his army service, she said, he worked in the orchards of the kibbutz. Several of his friends, who had also been drafted, stayed on the kibbutz and made it their home. It became a yearly tradition for the group, now in their 70s and 80s, to gather in Kafar Azah. Earlier this year, Gers said she and her family were in Israel for her cousin's bar mitzvah and visited the kibbutz. Her grandfather's friends all came together and hosted a beautiful day for us. She returned to the park where she'd grown up playing. Now, she said, it's a war zone. There was a video testimony of a couple from Kafar Azah whose 21-year-old son was killed during the attack. Another Israeli citizen did a Zoom call to the event and talked about her brother who was killed alongside his 20-year-old daughter. She shared her brother's life motto, Hope Dies Last. As Josh Donfeld, 47, leaned against a counter outside, he wrapped his arms around his crying wife. Like others present that night, he thought about how different his life might have been had his grandparents emigrated from Austria to the U.S. 
Just a stroke of chance that I'm in Malibu and not over there myself, he said. I think that's something that a lot of people in the Jewish community feel. As a community, I think it's important to figure out how we, how do we get together? How do we support each other? How do we figure out the best way to ensure our safety and comfort and our place in this city and in this country and in this world, he added. As the event came to a close, attendees hugged one another for comfort and spoke in a mix of Hebrew and English. Among them were Stephanie, 39, and SD, 42, who asked that their full names not be used out of concern for their safety. Stephanie recalled how, when she was growing up, her parents taught her the importance of listening to Holocaust survivors. They lived through something, and this generation is going to be gone one day, she recalled them saying, I'm sitting here thinking, I can't believe we have our own generation that's living through it, that's sharing these stories firsthand. As a community, and a people, she said, we're experiencing this all over again. That was LA residents Help a Kibbutz by Brittany Mejia. From the Los Angeles Times, Sunday, November 5th, 2023. Now let's go on to some long-delayed entertainment news now. This is from the calendar section of the Los Angeles Times for Tuesday, October 10, 2023. Dicks ends with a revelation. Film calls God a gay slur. Its creators insist its chapter and verse from Mel Brooks by Ashley Lee. Warning, the following contains spoilers for Dicks the Musical. After filming the first take of All Love is Love, uh, the closing song of A24's movie musical Dicks, Megan Mullally has a sinister epiphany. You two are going to get death threats, she told writers, stars Aaron Jackson and Josh Sharp for addressing her other castmates. We're all going to get death threats. This anecdote got laughs uh, when Bowen Yang uh, shared it at the movie's Toronto International Film Festival premiere last month. But Mulally's tongue may have not have been completely planted in cheek at a moment of fierce partisanship in politics and near-constant culture war battles descending from it, nothing is guaranteed to be uncontroversial. Least of all, a musical number that describes God with a gay slur. This is a satirical, absurdist, deeply silly, R-rated queer musical inspired by The Parent Trap, Mulally's co-star Nathan Lane told The Times with a laugh days before the film's theatrical run kicked off on Friday. It's not to be taken seriously, it's all in good fun, and people certainly seem to be enjoying it so far, but I'm not sure everyone will see it that way, and when it goes into the real world, I'm very curious to see what happens. The film's elaborate blasphemous ending begins after protagonist Trevor Jackson and Craig Sharp, two aggressively straight dueling corporate salesmen who, despite looking nothing alike, are identical twins separated at birth, reunite, reunite their strange parents, Mulally and Lane. Upon moving in together as platonic roommates, their brothers find themselves falling in love, having sex, and getting married. What began... As a 30-minute show titled F Identical Twins at the New York's Upright Citizens Brigade in 2014, the F word here being a verb as well as a common intensifier, retains the same spirit on screen nearly a decade later, one sharp likeness to that of legendary queer filmmaker and notorious pot stirrer John Waters. Uh, it's offensive and it's gross, but it's also campy and bombastic and absurd, he said. None of this is real. The first joke in the movie is that they are twins, and they just aren't. The whole thing is a F cartoon. 
inspired by Shakespeare's comedies, where every character gets married even when they shouldn't, said Jackson. The film, following the stage play, culminates in Trevor and Craig's incestuous wedding, which is interrupted by a diverse coalition of protesters just as the brothers are about to exchange vows. A cowboy next to a nun, next to a Mormon, next to a Buddhist monk? That's one of the oldest jokes in showbiz. That's Mel Brooks, noted Sharp. There's even someone with a New Yorker tote bag, tote bag because liberals would be mad at this moment if it, weren't for, if it were for real. And then, the funniest way to justify this whole F insane psychosis is to say, God has blessed this, so you can't be offended. It's at this point that Yang's officiate reveals his true identity. God himself wearing a Diego Montoya crown and a golden getup covered in stained glass windows featuring male couples hand-painted by Wilbur Gonzalez. The costume is so gorgeous. I hope it gets put into the Academy Museum right next to the Wizard of Oz ruby slippers, said Yang. Challenged by the mob's conservative Christian leader, played by Nick Offerman, Mulally's real-life husband, God explains that heterosexual sex is disgusting too. All love is gross, but all love is love. The filmmakers intended the phrase to play on the popular slogan of the marriage equality movement, pushing it to its literal extreme. All love is love is a beautiful sentiment in the queer community, but actually that's not true, said Jackson. Not every love is good. Some are bad and toxic and illegal. So after everything, these two men learn the wrong lesson. They say we love ourselves, we love each other, incest is good, and to have that be their takeaway in this movie from this family-friendly universe is funny to us. Making fun of a movie with a moral is something we wanted to play with, added Sharp. I miss comedies that don't feel message-driven. Austin Powers, Zoolander, Airplane, with crazy characters just delighting you. There's been so many straight guy versions of that, so it's great we get to do a queer version where the absurdity is the point. After God pronounces the twins legally married, telling the crowd, God loves all of you because God is all of you. God is man and woman. God is black and white. God is straight and gay. The brothers transform God's words into a rousing gospel tune with a subversive repeated refrain. All love is love and all, all love is love. God is a F and all love is love. The lyrics even appear on screen as if daring the audience to sing along. And this time, the F-bomb is a gay slur that's been reappropriated by many queer people, and it's highlighted in bright red. The way it's employed here is true frivolity, said Yang. The irony is uh, it, it's the people who would use that word in a hurtful way who are going to be the first people to get offended by it. Still, the crux of this scene is the wanton provocation and has been since Dick's The Musical was a stage play at UCB. Back then, Sharp explained, we'd lead the audience in this sing-along, and then we would put mics in their faces for only that word, and it force a person on the spot to make the decision of whether to use it or not. The bit never went wrong live. As Jackson recalled of one standout show, there was a man in his 50s or 60s who screamed it so loudly that it stopped the show because we were laughing so hard. It was like decades of wanting to say that word were pent up inside him. The much wider potential audience for the film, including some critics, may see it differently. I've seen a few reviewers write that we haven't earned the right to be as dirty as we are in this movie, which is interesting, 
like we haven't earned the right to say what we want to say, said Carl St. Lucie, who co-composed the song with Maurice DeVry. We still live in a time where, to some, to some queer people are dirty and nasty just by uh, existing. So it's tremendously important that queer people have the opportunity to take ownership of that and subvert it into the art that we make. That doesn't mean the team behind Dix was cavalier about the word, though. Sharpman Jackson acknowledged that even among queer people, the F-word can provoke a complicated array of reactions. On a set where getting away with things was a key objective, it was clear from the outset that each member of the cast and crew would need space to navigate the word in a way that felt acceptable to them. From the department ed's very first pre-production meeting, Sharp recalled, the goal was to establish a culture of respect even if we are going, even if we are doing something naughty together. We never wanted to feel mean-spirited, he added. When you're told you're gross and weird, you're like, well, I might as well have fun doing it. It's queer rebellion. Be gay. Do crimes. Of course, in order to be naughty, you have to be ready to upset people. Though all love is love is what Time Staff writer Michael Ordonia uh, described in his review as a final number calculated to make heads in certain corners of our political discourse rupture, then explode, Sharp and Jackson, who laughed off Mulally's comments about the possibility of death threats, are adamant that those upset by dicks simply aren't in on the joke. For anyone who doesn't think the final sequence is that funny, Sharp said, this is a movie we made for F for the people who get this joke. Well, while I think the audience is broader than that, this moment wasn't made to offend you. It's not that offensive. God is a F is a beautiful, positive statement. And if you think it's anything but, then it's just not for you. I've had to watch and consume and be a part of so much media and so much society that it is not made for me, added Jackson. But I just think I hated that and I get on with my F life. And now they can do the same. You can hate it and just move on about your day. Director Larry Charles, who previously helmed the Sasha Baron Cohen projects, Borat, Bruno, and The Dictator, also shrugged up the notion of a dick's backlash. I've done a lot of controversial things, and I'm just not worried about it, he said. I probably should be more concerned about it. My wife is concerned about things like that. She was researching a bulletproof vest for me. That was Dick's Ends with a Revelation by Ashley Lee. From the calendar section of the Los Angeles Times, Tuesday, October 10, 2023. Right, here we go with this one. From the calendar section of the Los Angeles Times, Sunday, October 15, 2023. An epic tale of an epic time in Hollywood. Foster Hearst revisits 1950S when studios banked on Big by Chris Wagner. I remember where I sat. These words, this introduction to a memory, launched Foster Hearst's sweeping, winningly eccentric new film historic book, Hollywood and the Movies of the 50s, a study that manages to be both personal and comprehensive. Hirsch, a longtime film professor at Brooklyn College, whose previous book subjects include film noir and Woody Allen, is recalling the day, April 30, 1953, when he joined a packed house at the Warner Hollywood Theater, an opposing Spanish-style movie palace on Hollywood Boulevard, to soak in a new widescreen exhibit exhibition format called Cinerama. As he writes, this semi-forgotten artifact seems to me a quintessential mid-century product a reflection of major artistic, cultural, and sociological currents of its era. 
but what really comes across in Hearst's writing is that it was a lot of fun for a kid who grew up in the grand one-screen movie palaces of old at a time when Hollywood was desperately trying to reinvent itself in the face of its suddenly ubiquitous new rival, television. Hearst's new book covers a lot of ground, including the competing widescreen formats of the era, Vista, Vision, Warner Super Scoop, 804, the industry's awkward but often affecting approach to issues of race and homosexuality, the death of the studio system, and the Hollywood blacklist. But the book is most valuable as a subjective chronicle of what it was like to go to the movies at a time when the industry's popularity was imperiled and it pulled out all the stops to keep its product relevant. For the record, Hearst sat in the center of the balcony for This is Cinerama, which was more of a travelogue showcase for the technology than a narrative film. It was an extraordinary experience, he says in a video interview from his Manhattan home. I was just a kid, 9 or 10. But Hearst, about to turn 80, writes about it like it was yesterday. As the curtains parted, we were engulfed by a curved three-paneled screen that seemed to stretch as wide and as high as the limits of human vision, while at the same time, we were inundated by sounds that came at us from all directions. As the camera placed us, with you are there immediacy on the front seat of a roller coaster as it dips and glides, swerves and hurdles at breakneck speed over the torturous course of a ride at the Rockway Playland Amusement Park in New York. Sounds a lot more fun than Netflix and chill, especially as related by Hearst's photographic memory. Although there are contemporary analogs such as IMAX and Sphere, the LED-loaded new spherical arena in Las Vegas, which might be considered the Cinerama of today. Hearst charts a tricky dance executed by the studios, which sought to please loyal, often older moviegoers, with more traditional fare while trying their best, as Ezra Pound once implored his fellow modernists, to make it new. Warner Brothers, for example, maintained its tradition of gangster movies like White Heat, Crime Wave, and The Breaking Point, but also made truly weird and memorable films in, in, uh, in this period, including Storm Warning, in which Ginger Rogers witnesses the Ku Klux Klan killing a reporter in a southern town. It turns out that the ringleader is her brother-in-law. Ronald Reagan plays the district attorney who takes on the KKK. Hers has a way with potent curios, B-movies, and genres that have fallen out of favor, like the religious epic, The Robe, The Ten Commandments, and others that were busting blocks decades before Star Wars and Marvel. I think the epics are great, but they're an acquired taste, and I know that they're not popular now, Hearst says. They've been critically dismissed for decades. I'm an oddity in that I have a soft spot for them. Ask Hirsch how long he's been working on the book, and you'll get two kinds of answers. On a practical research and writing level, he's been at it for about 10 years. But Hirsch was one of those kids who wanted to study and write about movies as soon as he learned a, such a thing was possible. The truthful answer is, I've been working on it for 70 years, he says. I wasn't aware of it at the time, but I started writing a book about movies of the 50s when I saw those movies as a kid. People ask, well, didn't you want to direct films or write scripts? No, I just wanted to write film criticism. Hollywood and the movies of the 50s is itself a welcome throwback, a big, ambitious film history book published by a major house, Knopf, as opposed to the usual single film chronicles that seem 
to dominate the movie shelves at bookstores. It's a big picture book. It's a book about CinemaScope and a book in, in CinemaScope, he says. A man goes to the movies. Robert Warshaw once wrote, the critic must be honest enough to admit that he is that man. It's safe to say Hirsch has no problem making his admission. It's a very personal approach, he says. It's my point of view. I'm a film historian who actually lived through that period, and so my younger colleagues would write about the 50s, and I hope they will write about the 50s, who will have a, a different perspective from mine. In short, he remembers where he sits. That was an, uh, an epic tale of an epic time in Hollywood by Chris Wagner from the calendar section of the Los Angeles Times, Sunday, October 15, 2023. With the little time that we have left, let's uh, read an article or two from Be'yahad together uh, from the Jewish National Fund USA. And uh, this is from the Together Food and Wine section. This is called Cooking Up a Curriculum from Scratch. The special sauce that makes a new culinary institute by Lior Lev Sirkar's co-founder of Spice Master and Nathan Hoffman, CEO. A culinary revolution is brewing in Israel's Upper Eastern Galilee as part of Jewish National Fund USA's Go North plan, and it is already cooking up a lot of excitement. The Galilee Culinary Institute by JNF will redefine culinary education. Moreover, its presence will contribute to the development of northern Israel through employment, tourism, and more. So what makes GCI by JNF stand out? We have partnered with industry leaders and experts to develop a world-class curriculum that goes beyond the kitchen. Our syllabus includes three essential pillars often overlooked in traditional culinary education, storytelling, entrepreneurship, and activism. Storytelling means that our students learn about the art of communication, whether it's networking and meeting others or an interview. Through media skills, content creation, food photography, and tech tools, which are crucial skills in the digital age, they will develop the hard and soft skills of sharing their story. With entrepreneurship, we are ensuring that students understand what it takes to start and run a successful culinary venture. As for activism, that may seem strange for a culinary curriculum, but we see it as central to the nature of cooking. This includes community involvement, events management, and sustainable practices like using leftover produce to combat food waste. We are driven by the desire to put Israel on the map for culinary excellence. Israel has a unique culinary heritage, and the Upper Eastern Galilee is the culinary capital of Israel. We want to share this bounty with the world. We are also driven by the desire to break down boundaries with food, understanding that food can be a powerful tool for bringing people together. Our vision is to use GCI by JNF to promote unity and understand and drive population growth. We are creating something truly unique and are so grateful to the many people who are contributing to its successes. GCI by JNF is slated to open with a ribbon-cutting ceremony on May 30, 2024, we hope to see you there. That was Cooking Up a Curriculum from Scratch by Lior Lev Serkars, co-founder of Spice Master, and Nathan Hoffman, CEO. To learn more about the Institute or student recruitment, visit GalileeCulinaryInstitute.com. Oh, and that's from the Together Food and Wine section. This is from the Together Travel and Tours section. This is called Israel Like You've Never Seen It. 
go behind the scenes to the magic of Israel with Jewish National Fund USA by Mara Ball. With Jewish National Fund USA's travel and tours, Israel's most iconic sites are just the beginning of your adventure. On your trip, you'll soak up the sun on the beaches of Tel Aviv, place your most precious wishes in a rolled-up note in the western wall, and swipe fresh, warm pita through the most delectable hummus you've ever tasted. That's the Israel you've seen your friends' photos and, and in your family albums. Then we'll whisk you off backstage for the Israel nobody else can show you. Israel is a land where modern and ancient meet. Together we'll meander through uh, between natural pillars of red rock where King Solomon held court long ago. From there we zip forward thousands of years and explore the secret underground munitions workshop that tipped the fledgling Jewish state to victory in the War of Independence. Then immerse yourself in the early days of Israel's kibbutz culture, meet a cobbler from 1943, and learn how resources were shared once upon a time. Dressed like a kibbutznik, join in traditional folk dance and clasp hands with Israel's earliest pioneers. You've never seen a desert this green. Deep in the Arava Desert, some of the most arid uh, land on planet Earth, stroll through towering bushes that are blooming with tiny watermelons that taste like heaven. Pluck some strawberries growing from the sand as you enter a lab that is discovering new ways to create food and energy security for the world's most remote communities from Asia to South America. Put on your goggles and discover the shocking life-saving possibilities of tobacco leaves and how they are contributing to research on organ regeneration. Human capital is Israel's greatest resource, and with us, you'll leave with new friends and feel like Israel is your family. Get to know the women in the multicultural northern region who are creating tech opportunities for their peers of all backgrounds. Dive into an Olympic-sized swimming pool in the middle of the desert and meet the kids who are achieving their aquatic dreams. Chat with an etrog farmer in his fields whose produce you've probably sniffed each Sukkot without even knowing it. Get personal wine pairing recommendations from the founders of Israel's top vineyards. Don't just tour the country, go to the heart of it. Jewish National Fund USA is on a first-name basis with the people behind the scenes. Let us introduce you. That was Israel Like You've Never Seen It by Mara Fall from the Together Travel and Tours section. For more information, contact Ilana Stower at istoehr at jnf.org or call 212-879-9305, extension 255. All right, let's conclude with some ads from this publication, Be'yahad Together, from the Jewish National Fund USA, Your Voice in Israel. And with this one, Fast and Simple, Plant Trees in Israel as a Memorial Gift. Go to jnf.org slash trees or call 800-542-TREE or 800-542-8733. And here's another one. Commemorate your loved one, honor and memorialize, Complimentary annual yard site reminders, online memorial wall plaques, Yiskor and holiday reminders and candles. Go to njmw.org, Jewish National Memorial Wall. Website again is njmw.org slash jnfmemorials. And then there is this one. 
don't miss any episodes of IsraelCast. Hear from fascinating personalities as they talk about the amazing work Jewish National Fund USA is doing in Israel. Listen at jnf.org slash IsraelCast. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, or SoundCloud. Jewish National Fund, your voice in Israel. Let's throw in this one. Donor Advised Funds, your charitable giving account. Giving made simple. Set up your fund online and manage your account 24-7. Flexible. Make grants to as many organizations as you like. Personal. Enjoy tax benefits and low administrative fees. Call or go online today, 800-562-7526 or jnf.org slash donor advised funds. That's all for now, folks. Shalom and peace.